0: Hello, and welcome back to The former Review. Today, we'll be having a very special episode where we'll be looking at three different films. Now sit back, grab your drinks, And let's talk about these movies. What's up, everyone, and welcome back to the Formal Review. This is season three, episode 47, and I thank you all for tuning in once again. So, welcome to the second episode in the award series as we are now in award season, and there are a lot of movies to be seen. So, every year I watch all the films that have been nominated for Best Picture, Best Director, and then all the acting categories. Sometimes also watch the screenplay movies if there's time or if there's only one or two that I haven't seen. Now, these films haven't been nominated yet, but there is a good indication of which of them are going to be nominated for these awards and because the list is so big i usually only have a month to put out these movie thoughts so i decided to increase the amount of movies covered in each episode for the next month or so in each episode to three so in part one of these series i covered mank one night in miami and promising young woman but in this episode i will be covering the trial of the chicago seven pieces of a woman and Eminite. and of course a small update to my collection so stay tuned So the only 4K upgrade that I made in the past week was for the Jason Bourne collection which the only true 4K ones being the first and last film and all the rest had 2K digital intermediate so they are fake 4K. However this upgrade came at less than a dollar a movie and by selling my old collection I actually ended up making a $3 profits upgrade. So really upgrade to 4K so really that's just all good news all around even if some of the films aren't the best. But you probably don't care about that too much so let's get talking about the movies. But before before I get into them let me preface everything with a slight spoiler warning I as always I will do my best not to ruin the movie for you however I do always recommend seeing the film first so you understand everything that I have to say about them but if you don't care about that keep listening also no, you know I talk about this at the end but then data shows that most people skip over that part <laughs> so I do want to reiterate the importance of leaving reviews on your favorite podcast service because those reviews really help me grow and improve a lot of you have talked to me offline but I do really appreciate the reviews that already are out there if everyone could just continue doing that or letting me know any way that you think that I could grow and make this more entertaining feel free and I'll look at them and I'll grow as such so if you haven't tuned in before what I try to do in each of my analyses is to kind of look at five things that make up a good film I haven't really been explicit about this before but I think it's an important thing to include going forward so these five things are story characters the details such as the score, direction, etc. The themes and messages of the film, and then the ending. And then analyze how these five things actually take place in the film. How does all of these things affect the story? How does the theme work with the character? And these five things are what makes up a good movie, objectively speaking. But if some of these things aren't integrated well into each other, then the film suffers. And that's what a film analysis is. And that's how I'm going to be progressing with how I look at these movies going forward. Not only just give my opinion about them now on to the movies at hand if you don't care about one of them feel free to skip ahead to about the four and a half minute mark for the trial of the chicago seven the 14 and a half minute mark for pieces of a woman and about the 25 minute mark for Eminite. or if you really want to listen to all three sit back relax grab your drinks now let's talk about these movies Trial of the Chicago Seven is a historical legal drama written and directed by Aaron Sorkin. This film follows the Chicago Seven, who were a group of anti Vietnam protesters charged with conspiracy and crossing state lines with the intention of inciting riots at this 1968 Democratic National Convention in Chicago. It features an ensemble cast that includes Yaha Abdul Mateen II, Sasha Baron Cohen, Daniel Flatter, Joseph Gordon Levitt, Michael Keaton, Frank Langella, John Carroll Lynch, Eddie Redmayne, Noah Robbins, Mark Rylance, Alex Sharp, and Jeremy Strong. I actually did a trailer reaction to this when the first was released so let me play that for you i have no idea who's in this but we'll see how this goes
1: we want to underscore again that we're coming to chicago peacefully but whether we're given permits or not we're coming not
0: sure i like his u.s accent
1: chicago to protest the vietnam war I and mean, there's no place to be right now but in it we watched for a decade while these rebels without a job tell us how to prosecute a war. Hmm. So they're going to spend their 30s in a federal facility. Real-time. Oh, hey. Just Gordon-Levitt. You know
0: Is that are you Sasha Baron Cohen?
1: Oh. Holy shit. Are you all right? <laughs> <laughs> are the people ready to make opening arguments? At the defense table, Abby Hoffman, Jerry Rubin, Dave Dellinger, Rennie Davis, Lee Weiner, John Freunds, Tom Hayden, and Bobby Seale. These defendants had a plan, and the plan was to incite a riot. I call this portion of the trial with friends like these. My Mm. trial's begun without my lawyer. The court assumes you are being represented by the Black Panther sitting behind you. The riots were started by the Oh, hey, Michael Keaton. Sustained. Nobody objected. Oh, Mark Ryland. six and eleven, they're with us. Juror number six and juror number eleven. <laughs>
0: Where do I know this judge from? Can
1: you tell us why? Because this is my courtroom. We.
0: D- oh, that's Franklin Jella, That's who that is. Okay. <laughs>
1: a defendant that was literally gagged. Get your hands off me! You are the first to suggest that I have discriminated against a black man. <laughs> Let the record show that I am the second. When we walked in here this morning, they were chanting that the whole world is watching. If we leave here without saying anything about why we came in the first place, it'll be heartbreaking. The last summer, why did you come to the convention? To end the war. We're giving them exactly what they want, a stage and an audience. You really think there's going to be a big audience? Here I come. This is what revolution looks like, real revolution. We may have to hurt somebody's feelings. Is this prosecution politically motivated? I'm tired of hearing you. It would be impossible for me to care any less what you are tired of. Here I am! There will be we have to find some courage now. How much is it worth you? What's your price? To call off the revolution? My life
0: cast is pretty stacked, honestly. It looks like it could be good. I'm not really sure how good. But... Yeah, I'd watch so it. So first things first. <laughs> Luckily, the accent wasn't as big as an issue as that I was concerned. <laughs> so the Chicago 7, who were originally the Chicago 8, were seven defendants. Abby Hoffman, played by Cohen in the film. Jerry Rubin, played by Jeremy Strong. David Dillinger, played by John Carroll Lynch. Tom Hayden, played by Redmayne. Rennie Davis, played by Sharp. John Froyoins, played by Flaherty. Lee Weiner, played by Noah Rowans, And Bobby Seale, played by Abdul Mateen II. They became the Chicago 7 after the case against Bobby Shield was declared a mistrial during the trial itself. So this all took place starting on March 20th, 1969, when they were brought before a grand jury charged under the anti-riot provisions of Title 10 of the Civil Rights Act of 1968. In the end, all were acquitted of conspiracy. However, Hoffman, Rubin, Dellinger, Hayden, and Davis were convicted of crossing state lines with intent to incite a riot. Freowins and Weiner were charged with teaching demonstrators how to construct incinerary devices and a were also acquitted of those charges, and then all of the convictions were reversed after an appeal. However, historians have shown that Sorkin plays with this story pretty freely, basically to ensure his screenplay can hit the right beats in the right order. Like most films that are based on a true story, things will be cut for the sake of good storytelling. Most notably, though Seal was the only one bound and gagged for a few moments of the film, he actually spent several days in court only able to communicate through muffled noises and Joseph Gordon Levitt's character Richard Schultz wasn't as sympathetic to the defendants as they shown in the film now he wasn't as bad as his boss but he was known as quote the government's pit bull however the majority of the events in the film are true including the gag pulled off by Hoffman and Ruben what
1: are you wearing it's an homage to you, Your Honor. Do you have clothes underneath her? Yes. Take off the robes, please
0: and most of the dialogue is even taken from the courtroom transcripts. Now, Rennie Davis, who is now 80, did state to The Guardian that the climactic closing statement wasn't like what Sorkin made in the film. It is still true that all the names of the people who lost their lives in Vietnam were read aloud at one point during the trial, not so much at the end. He also did not like his depiction as a, quote, complete nerd who's afraid of his own shadow. So it's very obvious in this movie that Sorkin is agreeing with the protesters And it is clearly showing that they are on the right side of history. Even though there's a little bit of bias, the trial of the Chicago 7 is fairly accurate and honestly entertaining. That really showed the two sides of the 1960s, the counterculture movement and the US government. Now, is this going to be a good biopic? It does get the essence of real life people and kind of who they are as human beings. Would you use this for a 100% accurate historical portrayal? No, not really you have to have some outside education regarding this or further education on this after watching this movie. But it does come off as a good movie, at least aesthetically speaking. The screenplay is really good, and pretty much every actor in this takes that script and is able to do the best that they can. And they all do really good jobs, and it's somewhat funny at times, which is really interesting for a film like this. The biggest highlights in the acting area is strong Rylance, Mateen, and Redmayne, and Keaton, whom all have really great moments throughout this movie. That really makes it worth watching for that acting a bit. However, when you look at the overall movie, it's not the best in the sense of the direction here. The writing is really good, but the problem is the stakes here don't feel as intense as the overarching setting that this is taking place in. It just seems so obviously done in a way that each event is set in place for the next event to happen. And it doesn't feel realistic at times. And the stakes are minimized here because Sorkin seemingly really wants to just show this story in this particular way. And again, it is engaging, but the overarching setting of the 1960s, the Vietnam War, all of these protests, the civil rights movement, the Black Panthers, all of this is kind of brushed over and the emotion that it could have isn't there. And frankly, that's what really can make this movie not really worth watching again. Again, engaging drama, but the characters aren't as impactful as they could have been. And that's really why this thing would be worth watching if you haven't seen it. Now, again, would you rewatch? Not really sure on that. It's not one that I personally would want to rewatch. Having said that I wouldn't be against rewatching it I'm kind of just meh about it it's honestly just an average court drama that checks each box of the story and it's done in a dramatic way but nothing is unique about this specific one that would require something to come back around the only thing that really stands out about it is yes a lot of these things are really interesting given the current state of things and really how much stuff hasn't really changed but again It doesn't go home with that too much, aside from here's evidence that things haven't changed. But there's no real push of what to do next. What do we do to change this? And that's again where this film does fail a little bit. The story is decent, the details again is where this film kind of struggles a, a lot. And through that, it's themes and messages. And the ending is powerful, but because of the overall themes, messages and details that it has issues with, again, it can make someone struggle to want to re-watch this movie now somebody who's a poly science major this may be good for them but that's really it now let's fast forward to a more recent time and focus on another court battle in pieces of a woman Faces of a Woman is a drama film directed by Mundruzzo Cornell from a screenplay by Kata Weber. It stars Vanessa Kirby, Shia LaBeouf, Maltby Parker, Sarah Snook, Ilsa Schelsinger, Benny Safdie, Jamie Falls, and Ellen Burson. In addition, Martin Scorsese also served as one of the executive producers. This film's main protagonists are Martha and Sean played by Kirby and LaBeouf respectively. They are a couple who are expecting a baby girl and up till the events of the movie they've had a fairly normal pregnancy. Then as soon as Martha's water breaks the midwife they had chosen for their delivery is not able to show up because she is stuck with another couple. The midwife then sends a replacement who does a good job and then the baby is born. Unfortunately, moments later, the baby's heart drops and she has trouble breathing and then she passes away. The rest of the movie explores how this couple deals with their grief while also fighting the midwife in court. So as you can see, this is a very traumatic and intense stage for a film to take place in. And in short, this movie has a lot of good things, especially in the acting category. Both. Kirby and Burslin are fairly fantastic and even LaBeouf's was good. The story is pretty solid and the themes are good too and more on that in a little bit. So this story isn't a true story even though it can feel like it. There are portions of Martha and Sean's story that the writer wrote from her own experiences in mind. In real life, her and her partner who is the director suffered a loss and the film allowed them to explore the depth of their pain while also understanding similar struggles of other women as they told the Hollywood Reporter. Now, the biggest question here is, would I rewatch this? Probably not. Not because it's bad, but because it's so emotionally draining. And really, one could align this with either Manchester by the Sea or even Marriage Story from a few years ago. Good movies, though, it's difficult for someone to want to rewatch this, especially if they don't attach themselves to the story. Would I recommend it? Yes, but with a grain of salt. You have to be ready to watch this movie. And if you are, there is a lot to like here, especially the acting. So that's the spoiler-free portion of the analysis because there's a lot to go over here and i don't want to spoil the movie so like i said yes go watch it, but be ready to, okay? So if you continue listening, there's going to be some spoilers on the film and this is your warning for it. So the film's story and themes are pretty intricate, especially with its themes of apples. Throughout the film, there are many prevalent examples of this. The film shows a decaying apple, which symbolizes Martha and Sean's rotting relationship. And then the fresh new apples at the end of the film, showing Martha's new beginning. One of the final moments has Martha finding sprouting apples from seeds that she had planted in her apartment. And then In the final scene, we see that these seeds have become trees now to give apples of their own. And in short, Martha is able to start anew with another child. Now it's not really clear who she has had this child with as Sean took money from her mother to leave and never come back. But that's not really the big deal here. See everyone deals with grief in their own ways. But when it comes to loss of a child, no one really knows that same pain as parents do. And I can only imagine how this can affect a mother as well as they carry the baby inside them for nine months whereas the father is there for support. Now not trying to diminish the father's contributions to this or grief but I would imagine a mother's loss of a child is a tad bit more painful. And I know I'm speaking in generalizations here. Now Martha grows from initially depending on those around her to essentially becoming her own person and that's what this film is about. At the beginning Martha seems to be the type of person who only wants to get things done but really goes for a home birth because she wants the baby to arrive in her own time. She depends on the baby to make the decision of when to arrive, not her own. The tragedy then happens and the midwife says that she asked Martha if she would want to call for an ambulance, but Martha under painkillers still insisted that she didn't want to go. As such, throughout the entire movie, she's overcome with guilt because of this decision and she's second guessing it the entire time. And then she becomes overwhelmed by her husband and her mother. Sean, John ends up being this kind of very needy and practically forcing himself on her but then states that her behavior put him out of the mood. And essentially says that all of these negative feelings are due to her and it's putting the blame on her and even the film tries to continue to portray him as a victim and has Martha's behavior as selfish. She is the one who kisses a coworker at the office party and again, the movie tries to show that it was her putting him out of the mood which caused him to cheat. And essentially, it becomes her against everyone. And in all of this, Martha is getting these discomfort from growing her apple seeds and this is because the only thing that she can remember about her baby is that she smelled like an apple. And then when we see Martha getting a photo that is developed of her holding her baby, she realized that really the baby only brought them joy and comfort, even if only for a few moments. And she knew then that her baby would not want anyone to be not happy and that included the midwife. And then she states this on the stand and then the midwife is acquitted. When she goes home, Martha notices, like I said, the apple seeds sprouting. And again, this symbolizes her new fresh start. The fruit is used to represent her grief and she evolves over the course of the film. She starts to rebuild her relationship with her mother and her sister. She then spreads the baby's ashes on the bridge that Sean was working on. Then we see Martha calling in her new daughter into the home from the top of an apple tree. And in a way, the apple tree is representative of the baby looking after Lucy from beyond the grave. And this somewhat flips the idea of the biblical meaning of apples on its head. Now, this is what I was taught growing up that the serpent handed Adam and Eve an apple which then represents temptation and sin and everything like that however as I grew older you find out that the King James Bible never actually names apple but simply refers to as quote the fruit in Genesis and I quote and the woman said to the serpent we may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden but the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden God had said you shall not eat it nor shall you touch it lest you die so the fruit of Eden has become apple most likely due to the Greek myth of the golden apples in the garden of Hesperides. And according to this legend, when Zeus and Hera were married, they were given apples, which then Hera planted in her garden and the Hesperides were responsible for watching over them. Now, they occasionally stole from it as well. So Hera then put a hundred headed dragon to also guard these apples. Then it also became one of Hercules' tasks to steal one of these apples, which is another myth altogether. And as a result, apples basically become this temptation and sin and things that aren't allowed to do. So how did the Bible actually end up saying apple? Well, we have to go all the way back to the fourth century AD to answer that because when Pope Damascus had the Hebrew Bible translated to Latin, it was noted by historians that the Latin words for evil and apple are the same malice. And the serpent gave Adam and Eve additional knowledge, but it also gave them the ability to conjure negative and destructive concepts such as shame and evil. So this is pretty much opposite what the film does. So one could argue as well that this is actually a direct representation of this story and it's actually a negative thing that she is moving forward. But here's the thing, even though her new daughter is named Lucinda or Lucy, Lucy in fact represents the next phase of life. So the Lucifer As. Aspect doesn't make sense here, especially when it comes to the apples. And I think that this is because what is in the Hebrew Bible, peri, which is what was translated into malice, is used for the fruit hanging from the tree. And historians have stated that it could have been a fig, a pomegranate, a grape, an apricot, a citron, or even wheat. It's not really known why peri was translated to malice because they have very different meanings. As an adjective, malice does mean bad or evil, but as a noun, it means the fleshy seed bearing fruit so again there's a lot of possibilities that it could be. And historically, if you go back as well, apples are thought to have positive connotations instead of negative ones. People throughout history have used the apples to treat their sick people with. You know the phrase, an apple a day keeps the doctor away? This phrase has true aspects to it. So why does this matter? Because also in Jewish traditions, an apple is a symbol for beauty, sweetness, and the hope for prosperity. So the hardiness of the fruit, its durability represents strength and growth. And we learn at a key point in this movie that Martha's mother, Elizabeth, played by Burston, is a Holocaust survivor.
1: After my father went into the ghetto, my, my mother found a shack, an empty shack that she went into and gave birth to me without any help at all. She stashed me under the floorboards when she had to go out and, and steal food so she could make milk enough to keep me alive, but just alive not strong enough
0: to cry. And this is why Martha is having a rough time coping throughout the film. Elizabeth is a mother who has worked very hard to simply survive through things and not mourn. And that's her way of life. Martha has issues as she fights to be strong, but it's difficult for her. Elizabeth wants her to stand up, but it's hard for Martha to do with this. But she learns from her mother what it means to stand up.
1: When she finally, he to a doctor, he advised her to just let me go. But when she absolutely insisted, he picked me up by my feet and held me up like a chicken and said, if she tries to lift her head, then there's hope. And you know what I did, Martha? I lifted my head. That's what I'm asking you to do now. Lift your head and fight for yourself, for God's sakes.
0: And in the end, Martha does become her mother by surviving her own strategy and standing up on her beliefs. And again, the fruit is used to represent this and she evolves and grows over the course of the film. Now this film succeeds extremely well with its story and the details, the characters are great and then its ending is fantastic. But again, would I rewatch this? Probably not. Again, not because it's bad or anything, but because it's just emotionally draining. Would I recommend with it? Yes, again, but with a grain of salt. You gotta be ready to watch it. If you are, there's a lot to like, especially the acting. Now, speaking of acting, let's go back in time to the 1800s to talk about Emanite. What did you think of these movies? Let me know, hit me up on social media. So, Eminite is a romantic drama film written and directed by Francis Lee. It's loosely inspired by the life of British paleontologist Mary Anning, played by Kate Winslet, and it centers around the fictitious romantic relationship between Anning and Charlotte Muncheson, played by Chercer Ronan, along with Kemma Jones, James McArdle, Alex Serkanaugh, and Fiona Shaw. So, here's a quick history lesson Mary Anning was born in 1799 in a town on the southern coast of England, and she began collecting fossils at a young age. After her father died unexpectedly in 1810, Anning continued to collect fossils to help pay off the family's debt. When she turned 12, she eventually found a crocodile skeleton, which actually turned out not to be a crocodile, but an ichthyosaurus or fish lizard. This ended up being a very crucial discovery in the field of paleontology, and as a woman growing up poor in the early 19th century, she received little formal education. But despite this, she made discoveries that helped the understanding of science and geology such as the theory of extinction through the fossils that she found she gave the scientific community reason to think that species did not live forever. She is even credited with influencing Charles Darwin's theory of evolution as he cites her fossils in his book On the Origin of Species. And many men in this field came to Anning for guidance and then published their own papers based on her work. And as such, she was not able to really author anything of her own because of her gender. Additionally, the Geological Society of London refused to let her, or really any other woman, become a member or even attend their lectures. However, they did reference her discoveries in their meetings, so they took credit for her work. Historians have stated that the vast scope of her work is very difficult to define because she sold her fossils to the men for their personal collections, and then when they sold those pieces to museums, they received the credit for finding them instead of on it. Currently, her ichthyosaur is actually featured at the National History Museum in London, and in 2018, the museum name several rooms after her as a celebration of her contributions to science which is one of many postumptuous awards that she has been granted. After she died of breast cancer in 1847 the Geological Society of London marked her death in a president's address which is very rare. So fast forward to 2018 when Francis Lee wrote the script to this movie which is one of the many fictionalized accounts of Annie. As I said this movie concentrates on her relationship with another woman Charlotte Murchison. In real life Charlotte Murchison was married to a well-off man and lived very comfortably while Ani was barely making enough to get by. Murchison's husband is a well-regarded figure in the geology world, and he also served as president of the Geological Society for many years. But he did write, quote, but who is aware that there would be never a geologist Roderick Murchison without the encouragement from a woman, end quote. So Charlotte was that woman. She was the one who studied mineralogy while her husband was an army officer and then a fox hunter. She was the one who told him to pursue science. Both of them eventually met Aning and they worked together. However, Charlotte's romantic relationship with Aning is completely fictionalized. In fact, little is known about her romantic history outside the fact that she was unwed for the course of her life. As such, two of her distant relatives were reported as having differing views on this decision to depict her as a lesbian, with Lorraine Awning supporting the film, but Barbara Aning criticizing the choice. Now, the director, Lee, defended it because, quote, after seeing queer history being routinely straightened throughout culture and giving a historical figure where there is no evidence whatsoever of a heterosexual relationship, is it not permissible to view that person in a- another context? End quote. Now, while I understand where coming from I would question any relationship that is put on screen in a biopic if it is completely fictionalized but don't get me wrong seeing LGBTQ love on screen is great and frankly we probably will never know anything more because at this point it is unknown so it's not really out of the realm of possibility like the director said Lee gives his actors a lot of possibilities for them to give an incredible amount without dialogue the film places the viewer right in this time period for this romance and frankly, the film does show what a relationship can do for someone without feeling overwhelming. Lee's screenplay deliberately has very minimal exposition, which allows the audience to figure out the characters' backstories through their body language and unspoken cues. Now, this perhaps could be an allusion to the true aspects of Ani's romantic life, but that is just my interpretation. Now, Lee, as well as one of the best actors out there in Kate Winslet, and she does not disappoint. This is perhaps one of her best performances yet as Aning. Her and Ronan are able to portray this incredible chemistry. Their relationship shows how partners teach each other new things about themselves and Ronan is also really good here though she hasn't really been bad at anything either but the star is Winslet. Her and Aning is more than just a good verbal portrayal but also a physical one. She essentially transforms into this other person when Charlotte touches her for the first time and this is all done through body language and unspoken cues. And Frank Ronan's even able to keep up. The film succeeds with its story and its message. The characters are extremely engaging, the details aren't perfect, but not bad in any way, and the ending is interesting to say the least. Unlike very many historical LGBTQ love stories, this film doesn't end on a tragic note. One could say that historically Onings and Charlotte's love would lead to persecution and perhaps even more disregard than they had already. However, the film doesn't go down that route. In fact, it ends essentially happily with the two embracing each other in a very intimate way really to show that love matters no matter what's going on in the world around you now would i re-watch this probably not mostly due to its slightly lengthy runtime of 120 minutes which could have been knocked down a little bit however that doesn't take away from the film's overall fantastic aspects especially in the acting category now, what did you think of the movies? Let me know. Hit me up on social media. Former Review is on Facebook, Twitter, and the Gram. I post many things, including trailer reactions, so go check those out. The handle is all the same it's at The Former Review. Feel free to also check out BackseatDirectors.com, where I work with a big team to put out movie reviews and also editorials. Again, that's BackseatDirectors.com. Please also subscribe to The Former Review. We're on Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify. We're now on Amazon Music, iHeartRadio. Honestly, pretty. much anywhere you can find a podcast we have our content there also i'm always wanting to grow and improve so please leave a review and what you want to hear because i really do this for you all i see the numbers and i really appreciate everyone supporting me and talking to me about movies because frankly that's what it's all about and for anyone who has supported me on a financial basis thank you again and if you want to help support on a financial basis please go to anchor.fm forward slash the minus sign formal minus sign review and click support this podcast And honestly, any donation is appreciated. Thank you all again for tuning in. And until next time, wear your mask, wash your hands, stay safe and take care, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of The Formal Review. Cheers, and we'll see you next time.